This is episode 217 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Today's guest agreed to be a part of our show for the very reason that our show is free and available to listen to everyone. By being our patron, you help us keep the show free and available to everyone and allow us to meet with guests like Peter Barber, the former head of map collections at the British Library. Thank you for supporting our show. You can find out more about our patrons' benefits at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hey, it's me, Cassidy. I know Gary's already done the editing on the show for today, but I just had to jump in here to interrupt the program because I have a special announcement. Starting July 6th, I'm going to be starting my Zero to Podcasting Mastermind Group. It's a one-year training-intensive program where I will work with historians and humanities professionals that want to start their own successful podcast. I'll be walking them through step-by-step how to go from absolutely nothing but a desire to podcast all the way to successful business podcast platforms that lets your passion for history work for you. I know this training program works because it's the exact step-by-step method I use to launch that Shakespeare life. And it's the same method that's already worked for other students of mine who started out as listeners just like you. If you're sitting there wishing you had a successful podcast of your own, then come join us this year and let me show you how to make that dream a reality. Now, I'm only taking a handful of people because to work with you in this highly one-on-one personalized way, we're keeping the group super, super, small and focus so that I can focus on making sure you get the results that you want. If you want to be in on my exclusive mastermind group and finally start that podcast you've been thinking about, then apply right now at CassidyCash.com slash mastermind. Mastermind is all one word. So that's CassidyCash.com slash mastermind. The deadline to get that application in is coming up fast. It's June 30th and we won't be accepting applications after that date. So go ahead and apply right now. I hope I will see you inside. Okay, Gary, take them back to the show. It's very easy easy to be misled by portraits of Elizabeth into thinking that map-making was central to Tudor England. You know, people, yes, they did understand maps. They could read them. But most people didn't really understand their importance. But the people who did understand their importance were extremely effective propagandists. So in the case of Elizabeth, who was the font of all honour, They didn't miss an opportunity to portray her looking at handling a globe, standing on a map in a geographical context. And it's very easy to be misled by those images into thinking, gosh, she genuinely was interested. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Transoceanic travel was a staple of European endeavors for the 16th and 17th century, with both Elizabeth I and James I spending massive amounts of money and effort to work with trading companies and explorers who traveled to other continents for trade, commerce, and colonization during Shakespeare's lifetime. 
In order to reach these new and exotic places, as well as to be able to return again after the new places had been found, the sailors and explorers relied mainly on navigation by the stars and the wind to get to their destination. However, this time in history is when printed maps and manuscript charts started being used as a fallback for navigation, and in some cases for political propaganda. There were maps by John Smith that the pilgrims consulted when they traveled to the New World, and there were also Sir Francis Drake circumnavigated the globe in the 16th century. There was a hand-illustrated map of his journey created in the 1570s. Shakespeare references a map of the world in Henry V and a map of ports, piers, and roads in Merchant of Venice, along with 14 other references to maps and mappery that are incredibly contemporary to what was going on in his life concerning maps. Here this week to help us understand how map making worked for Shakespeare's lifetime, exactly who it was that was employed as cartographers, and whether or not the maps sailors relied upon were indeed accurate, is our guest and former head of map collections at the British Library, Peter Barber. Peter Barber was head of maps and topography at the British Library between 2001 and 2015. He has written and edited several books on old maps meant for the general public, as well as contributing numerous academic articles and chapters to journals and scholarly publications. He is particularly interested in maps from before 1800 and their historical, political, courtly, cultural, and psychological contexts. He continues to research and write and can contribute to and advise on radio and television programs and series about historical maps. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Was cartography an established profession for the 16th century? I mean, could individuals make a living being a map maker during Shakespeare's lifetime? I know there were people like Wenceslas Holler who drew maps as part of a larger artistic repertoire. So orient us here around the profession of map making. Was map making a side gig or were there people that did this full time professionally? Well, it was very much a side gig. And most of the map makers had other professions. Perhaps the one exception are the draftsmen who lived along the River Thames, who from the 1590s onwards were more or less full-time map makers, but they also did other things. When the government wanted a pretty charter or something that looked rather glamorous, they would go to them too. And in in fact, you know, they were just draftsmen. And underlying your question is the idea that there was such a thing as a map maker. And in the 16th century, that was certainly not the case. If you were a skilled engineer or an artist or a surveyor, and you had some sort of drawing skills, well, you'd likely make maps. Was a reliance on maps on board ships the traditional form of naval navigation for the 16th century, or was the use of charts and maps considered the new method of plotting a course during this time period? Well, most certainly not. Chart making and and the use of maps at sea came to England really late. There's evidence that maps were being used at sea in Portugal, Spain, Italy from about 1400, but as late as the 1550s. There were many, many English sailors who didn't see the point of maps, since they navigated using what's called a rum line, which basically is rather like a mole's eye approach to to travel. They sort of periodically put a piece of lead down to the bottom of the ocean to see where they were, because they knew from by tradition that if you're if you were at such and such a place, then it was going to be this deep. And they navigated by the rum line and by the stars, but things began changing. 
sort of in the 1570s, 1580s, when slowly, slowly, uh, English navigators began to use charts. But even then, most of them didn't. They would chart using the stars and they would use a lot of traditional knowledge. The people who did use the charts, and this may come as a bit of a surprise, were the people who employed them, the merchants in their offices who wanted to find out where their ships could dock, who would be responsible, how easy it was to get there. And then they would sort of talk to the sailors. We know that there were maps associated with the journey of the pilgrims that were created by John Smith when they traveled to the New World in the 1620s. And we do know that John Smith was among the travelers for that journey. But Peter, orient us here around the culture of maps and John Smith's role. Was it customary for the map maker to travel with explorers for the purpose of creating maps along the way? Well, there are actually two questions there. The first question is, did map makers and painters accompany voyages? And the simple answer there is most certainly they did. The best known is probably John White, who went to Raleigh's, Walter Raleigh's colony of Virginia near Roanoke in the early 1580s. But people like John, John Smith didn't actually, as far as I know, create maps that helped the, um, you know, the navigators. His main role was a, as a propagandist. So he acquired information, put it in printed maps, and the printed maps were really propaganda tools aimed at attracting further colonists by making North America seem as much like England as possible. You said that the mapmaker would travel with them. Was the mapmaker on board to be a kind of navigator or was the creation of the map kind of after the fact? No, the, the, the mapmaker or artist was there simply to illustrate the journey. And before he set out, he was given a series of really detailed instructions in many cases as to exactly what he should draw, what he should map, why he should map it, and so on. He certainly didn't play any part in actually navigating on board ship. Apart from anything else, in many cases, in many cases, these map makers were of a higher social class, and it wouldn't have been appropriate for them to do something that was as menial. But what did happen was that an experienced pilot might, when he retired, or after a number of years, he might turn to making charts, and so, and even then. It's not quite as simple as that, because he would, on the basis of his trips, draw up the data that was needed to make a chart. He would then present the chart to the, whoever it was who commissioned it, but only after that chart had been copied out by a professional draftsman, particularly after 1590, the people who are living along the banks of the River Thames. And this often causes confusion because a map will be called John White's map for this, or John Smith's map, whatever. But in fact, it's not. It's the copy made by professional draftsmen following the initial sketch by the former pilot who made the map. Do you understand? I follow. Yeah. So it's, it's actually an iteration of what was there. Yeah, exactly. 
Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, there's a quote where Maria says he does smile his face into more lines than is in the new map with the augmentation of the Endies, end quote. Peter, Twelfth Night was first performed in 1602. Was there a new map created around this time that included an augmentation of the Endies that Shakespeare might be referring to with this line? There was indeed. It was a map which is now extremely rare by a man called Edward Wright, who combined the Mercator projection, which is what we're familiar with today on modern maps, with the traditional hydrographic sea chart, which contained what's called drum lines, which look like sort of compass lines going from a compass. In fact, they sort of trace winds and were compositional aids. But if you can imagine it, the lines of the Mercator projection were superimposed on these rum lines to create an awful lot of lines. And I think that's what Shakespeare was referring to. This particular map was published in 1599. So the, the Shakespeare play comes out in 1601, 1602. So he's writing it in about 1600. So it really is very, very new. So a very contemporary reference. A very contemporary reference. This actually says a lot about how up-to-date Shakespeare was and what his interests were. And it's particularly interesting for this map because this map, even without Shakespeare's reference, would be one of the most important maps produced by an English person at that time in Shakespeare's lifetime. And it is now extremely rare. So it just shows, you know, something like 95% of the maps of the printed maps that Shakespeare would have been familiar with are now lost. And many of the maps that he used are totally unknown today. Peter writes that, quote, by 1600, maps, atlases, globes, and charts had become part of the fabric of everyday life of the wealthy and middling sorts, so common indeed that Shakespeare or Dunn could confidently derive allegories from them in their plays and poems without fear of being misunderstood, end quote. The combination map that you just referenced is one example of this, Peter. But I wonder, are you saying that the average person in Shakespeare's London would have known how to read or consult maps on a regular basis? By 1600, they probably would. But let's go into that a bit. When you talk about average, you're not talking about laborers, workmen who are illiterate. You're talking about people who can read. And by 1600, maps had been around long enough, or printed maps had been around long enough for most people to be familiar with this, with them. And we know this because across the channel in the Dutch Republic, uh, the various Dutch provincial governments at about this time were producing copper coins called tokens or jettons, which were meant for everyday use. And quite often they had a design of a map on them. And if unless the people for whom they were intended, I, you know, literate shopkeepers and so on, knew map, what a map was, it wouldn't have had any effect. So that's a sort of an acid way of um, assessing map literacy. But in the 1550s, for instance, then it would have been rather different. Were the maps of the 16th and 17th century drawn to scale? I mean, did they use measurements like miles and kilometers to judge distance? Well, they did, but again, it's it's not as simple as that because even today, if you, if somebody's visiting you and they ask, "Well, where do you live?" 
you're likely to draw up a sketch map, which isn't going to be to, to scale at all, but will serve its purpose. And people were doing that in, in, in Shakespeare's time. And quite often, a map didn't need to be a, uh, to scale to serve its purpose. So a lot of the maps produced in Shakespeare's time aren't to scale. For certain purposes, like national surveys or particularly estate surveys, they are to scale, and they're to a scale of miles, except that, you know, in the 16th century, the mile was defined differently in different parts of England, let alone in Europe. So, you know, it was a little bit risky. And quite often on maps, they put a variety of scales to give an idea. But the scale, the accuracy was relative. There wasn't a standardization of, of distance at no, all. There were, well, there were different there were different scales for distance, but but the whole concept of accuracy depended on how well measured the the map was and how experienced the map maker was. And in certain cases, like estate maps, it was pretty important. In other cases, frankly, it was less important. Everything depended on the purpose of the map. In some cases, scale was just a rough indication, and that was fine. But even with estate maps, with maps that was or measurements, fortification plans, which were supposed to be really, really precise, by our standards, they would only be relatively accurate. But since everything else was relatively accurate, people wouldn't have noticed. It was the best that could be done, and it was it was fine. So, who was in charge of making sure the maps created during this time period were? Correct. Was there any kind of oversight or accountability to the maps that were published? You mentioned that some noblemen would commission these maps. And of course, I suppose state maps were overseen by someone in the government. But yeah, but not to that extent. In in Spain and in Portugal, it was different with the maps that were officially sponsored of, for navigations to the East Indies and to America and so on. In Spain and Portugal, you had a so-called piloto mayor, a man in charge, who really did sort of vet the maps for accuracy and reject the ones that weren't accurate. In England, that didn't exist, with one big exception, and that is in 1601, the East India Company was founded, and as part of the structure, a man was appointed who was supposed to oversee the accuracy of the maps produced for the East India Company. But for the rest, we didn't have the sort of governmental structures that we think of today, and everything was done on a pretty informal basis. Peter's work identified 16th century map makers, cartographers, chart makers, and even hydrographers as all being part of the field of map making. Peter, what were the major kinds of maps being made in the 16th century? Because I think it's important to point out that not all maps are the same kind of map. Absolutely. Well, you get a wide variety. You get, if you go from sort of maps of small areas, you've got fortification plans being produced in the 1530s. You've got plans of the coastline, again, being produced in the 1530s, but these aren't to scale, but they're sort of distorted so that what's important is shown. By the 1570s or mid-1570s, you've got the first estate plans. In the same period, they're generally, they're imported, well, they're almost exclusively imported from abroad. You get maps of the world, maps of the heavens, maps 
of the continents, but these are not produced in England. And the few examples that are created by Englishmen are printed abroad. And then, you know, you've got the, the, the sea charts, and by and large, until the 1580s, they tend to be manuscript, they have, tend to be hand-drawn. And the best ones after, after the 1580s continue to be hand-drawn, though you begin to get printed charts. And you get maps showing routes. And in England and in Europe as a whole, what you do begin to get from the 1560s onwards is the first national surveys. And it's often said that a man called Christopher Saxton was the first man to map a nation. And of course, he was English. Well, this is a load of patriotic baloney. There were lots of other people who had been doing it in, in Europe before him. But he was involved in the mapping of the counties of England in the 1570s. And that was a sort of quasi-governmental enterprise. And that was very, very important. But again, the maps were printed abroad. So who were some of the most famous cartographers during Shakespeare's lifetime? Who are the, the people we know of today that were doing this? Well, almost exclusively foreigners. Perhaps the best known at the time was probably a chap called Abraham Ortelius, who worked in Antwerp from 1570 to 1597. And he brought out, in a sense, the first modern atlases in that he got the best maps produced by mapmakers throughout Europe and then reformatted them and put them into a book of maps which people could buy, the Theatrum Terrarum Orbis, which was enormously popular. So Ortelius was very well known, even though he wasn't primarily really a mapmaker. He was, he was a mapmaker, but not outstanding. The outstanding mapmaker was Gerardus Mercator, or Gerhard Kramers was his real name. He sort of was Dutch-German, and he was in operation in the Netherlands and in, in Antwerp and in, um, in Germany in Cleves, up to, again, the mid-1590s when he died. And he was special because he really felt that he had a mission to produce accurate maps of the whole world, which were drawn more or less to a standard scale and based on the very, very best information. And he was highly critical of what was done, of the, of the work that was presented to him, unlike Ortelius, who sort of took it and just republished it. So the, I mean, Ortelius and Mercator are really the two outstanding mapmakers. They're equal, they were important national mapmakers like Mancini for the Italian states and so on, but they were really important. And now another person, again, a Dutchman, was a guy called Wagener, who produced the first printed sea charts in 1584. And this became... These became so popular that this sort of book became known as a Wagner after him. And this was translated into English at the time of the Armada, and certainly Shakespeare would have known it. So the Wagner would have been important. In fact, the adaptation and translation of the charts into English was done by a guy called Anthony Ashley, who was a secretary to the Privy Council, so very, very much mixed up with government. And it's significant that all of this took place at the time of the Armada. But in terms of England, 
the most important person was probably Christopher Saxton, whom we've already talked about. But at least initially, and this is sort of not generally known, I think his maps were regarded as confidential. And it's only after the Armada, when there was less of a threat to England, or the threat had presented itself, that his maps became better known. And he produced, as I say, maps of the counties of England. But he didn't map county by county. He quite often grouped maps together. And it was only 20 years later when a really, actually, I think a lovely personality called John Speed, who was a tailor, but a, a really warm character who didn't mind admitting that he'd been putting his scythe in other people's corn. You know, I mean, he'd been borrowing material, but he produced an atlas and as to illustrate a history. And that contained maps of all of the English counties one by one, the English and Welsh counties one by one. And this is about 1610, 1611, towards the end of Shakespeare's life. And these maps are, are really beautiful. They're adorned with all sorts of illustrations. And the interesting thing really is that Christopher Saxton's map of, maps of the 1570s were essentially, as I said, a government commission. So they're quite plain. They have the coat of arms of the Queen, of course, and they have the coat of arms of a guy called Seckford who actually paid for them. But John Speed in 1610, sorry, I meant John Speed, not John Norden, he was dependent on public sales. So his maps were as pretty as they could be because he needed to sell them. So, you know, his maps have got coats of arms of the local county. They have the coat of arms of the earls of whatever county it was. They have illustrations of its history and, and so on. They really, really are nice. And obviously now they're very much sought after by collectors. And then, as I say, it was John Speed who produced the maps, in, the county maps in 1610, 1611. I mentioned John Norden. John Norden also produced county maps, but he didn't cover the whole country. John Norden comes as close as you can get in the 16th century, reverting to your early question, to a professional map maker, though he was actually very much more. But he produced estate maps, including estate maps for King James I. He produced maps of the counties of England, though only a few of them, which accompanied extensive written texts, gazetteers about those particular counties. He produced maps for the government of what we would call hotspots. I mean, just as today, they're busy, the Americans, I'm sure, are busy making maps of Ukraine. So he was making, busy making maps for the government of, of Northern Ireland and so on, because that's where the trouble was. So he was doing all of that, but he was not really a professional map maker. He was partly a religious preacher at, at one point, and for the rest, he considered himself primarily to be a writer. Something interesting, Peter, that you wrote about was that Elizabeth I was probably ignorant of maps. I find this really surprising. Can you tell us about how we know she couldn't read them? Well, I'm not saying she was ignorant of maps. What I'm saying is that she couldn't understand maps. And that's a rather different thing. I mean, my father, whom I love dearly, couldn't understand a map at all. He couldn't read a map. We kept on, when I went for walks with him, I always found myself sort of knee deep in mud because he couldn't quite see where we were supposed to be going. And that was a bit like Elizabeth. I mean, Elizabeth was a woman 
who operated on words. It was text that meant something to her. With maps, she just couldn't read them. She couldn't understand them. And there are lots of people like that, you know, today. And, you know, whenever there are mentions of her with maps, it's always that she was giving the map that she'd been presented with to Lord Burley, to one of her ministers. But perhaps the most telling index of how unaware she was of the potential of maps is what happened with the royal estates, because her wealth depended on the income that she received from the royal estates. So we would have thought that she would have had a vested interest in getting them mapped to ensure she knew what she had and so that her agents could ensure that the leased lands were paid for by appropriate levels of rent and so on. She did none of that. And there's a, a reason why she wasn't encouraged to do it too, because her very ministers, people like Lord Burley, who were mapping their estates, were actually quite busily encroaching on the royal estates. And so through her lack of awareness of the potential of maps, she allowed, it, allowed the crown to be defrauded. And you could actually go further than that and say that because she was lax during her reign, such damage was caused to the integrity of the royal estates that by the time Charles I came to the throne in 1625, there simply wasn't enough income coming from the royal estates to pay for his expenses. So he had to go to Parliament, and we all know that it ended up with him being executed. So you could sort of argue that if Elizabeth I had known a bit more about maps, Charles I wouldn't have been executed, and Oliver Cromwell, Cromwell wouldn't have been. Certainly a powerful argument for being knowledgeable about maps, which I know Peter's work in the history of maps is quite extensive, and we're only able to touch on the very basics here in our conversation today. I'll link you to the history of cartography written by Peter Barber, on which most of today's questions were based, so you can read the rest of that publication in the show notes. But Peter, I want to ask you for your recommendations of where we should begin if we want to be knowledgeable about not just maps, but maps from Shakespeare's lifetime in particular, what are some of your favorite suggestions for where to begin when we want to learn more about maps in Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, what I'd strongly recommend is Paul Harvey's book on Tudor map making, which was published by the British Library about 20 years ago, which presents all of the different sorts of map making that were taking place in Britain at the time. And it's a relatively small book, very well illustrated, and it presents the whole picture. If you want more of a focus on Shakespeare, then there's a map, there's a book by Jeremy Black, who's an academic in Exeter University, which is called Mapping Shakespeare and is the closest you'll get to answering the question of maps and Shakespeare. But really, you should consult it together with Paul Harvey's book, which, which is excellent. As an, I say, hasten to add, as an introduction to the general reader. And then I think another book, but it was published years ago. It's, it's called English Mapmaking, 1550 to 1650. This was published, it's really the proceedings of a conference that took place a generation ago in the British Library. But it's still very, very valid because those essays give you a really good idea about 
the reality of map making and the interplay with government and individuals and and so on it's very easy easy to be misled by portraits of elizabeth into thinking that map making was central to tudor england you know people yes they did understand maps they could read them but most people didn't really understand their importance but the people who did understand their importance were extremely effective propagandists so in the case of elizabeth who was the font of all honor they didn't miss an opportunity to portray her looking at ha- handling a globe standing on a map in a geographical context and it's very easy to miss be misled by those images into thinking gosh she genuinely was interested she was just interested in the propaganda these are excellent resources we'll link to all of these in the show notes thank you peter for suggesting them we'll make sure that we share those and now we ask everyone this next question here at that shakespeare life and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island my friends in england tell me i'm supposed to allow you the complete works of shakespeare and a copy of the bible so your choice would be in addition to those right well am i allowed one book or a multi-volume book uh, it's your island so you can have either okay well if i have a multi-volume book what i take is a fantastic atlas of town views of Europe produced by well a Protestant and a Catholic called Brown and Hogenberg first published in 1572 modeled very much on Ortelius's work and it continued to be republished until 1680 it's got the most fantastic views of towns and cities throughout Europe and in fact even in the Americas and it's you know if i was stuck in the desert island i could spend many happy hours just sort of dreaming my way out of it by looking at the images if i have a single volume then it would probably be john speed's history of england with the maps of the counties which also would enable me to sort of travel through england even though i was stuck on a desert island absolutely i think those are excellent choices for your deserted island for sure so what's next for you what are you working on now that you're excited about well i'm hoping to publish a book over the next 2 years or so on english monarchs and their maps from the year 1000 to 1830 so it'll cover the elizabethan period we will definitely look forward to seeing that come out thank you so much peter barber for being here with us today and walking us through the history of maps in shakespeare's lifetime this has been a really fun conversation we're honored to get to speak with you thank you so much it's a pleasure Be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Our show notes for today's episode contain more information on our guests and their research, as well as links to the resources they recommend you use to learn more about today's topic. You can see things like all of the different map makers that Peter Barber talked about today, as well as organized links to the various maps and resources that he talked about, those are all packed in our regular show notes for you. You can find these things at castycash.com slash episode 217. That's cassidycash.com slash EP217. If you enjoy the history you learn about here each week and you like getting to hear from established experts like Peter Barber, then please consider supporting our show and helping us continue to connect with guests like these and continue the legacy of William Shakespeare by becoming a patron. Patrons get exclusive visual content that coordinates with our show. Like today, there's 
the illustrated maps of John Speed, as well as the maps by Artilius and all the different things that Peter talked about that are highly visual. That content is available for our patrons inside what we call the detailed show notes. Additionally, patrons at the video library level or higher get access to our exclusive collection of documentary films, animated plays, virtual tours, and bonus interviews. You can learn more about all the various patron benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.